is depression funny? Oh yeah, absolutely. Why? Well, <laughs> it's it's this absurd thing that your your own body's chemicals do to you to make you feel sad? That's dumb. <laughs> what what evolutionary purpose does that serve? You yes. know what I mean? It's it's really it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we have that. It's bad enough we still have an appendix that does nothing that's just with just a ticking time bomb in our bodies. <laughs> But then also brain chemicals are going to like get mixed up the wrong way and make you feel bad. Like that's hilarious if you think about it. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe, your host. On this program, and you may already know this given that we are now on episode 9, I talk to professional comedy folks who have dealt with depression. I choose to say dealt with instead of battled. Battled is way too active. I think those of us who have had depression know that battling just seems like so much work. You gotta get out of bed. You probably have to change out of sweatpants. And then battle? Gah, no. What am I, Braveheart? Let's just say dealt with. The purpose of this program is to talk about depression and get you talking to other people about depression and mental illness because that's going to help it will be good for the health of the general public, and it might save some lives. I have heard so much response to this program since we launched, and I am so honored and relieved and humbled and glad that people are, in fact, talking. Good. Keep at it. Keep talking. Anyway, here's our guest. My name is Paul F. Tompkins. I am in Los Angeles, California. Paul F. Tompkins is a stand-up comedian with several specials and comedy albums. He's also an actor. He stars in the CISO series Bajillion Dollar Properties, and he plays Mr. Peanut Butter on the Netflix series BoJack Horseman, which is a really good animated show about a depressed horse. And he's in There Will Be Blood, where he plays a guy trying to get Daniel Day-Lewis to come back to a meeting. Mr. Day-Lewis does not go back to that meeting. I used to have Paul as a guest on a radio variety show called Wits that I used to host. And whenever we'd have Paul on the show, which was as often as we could, everyone at the show, everyone involved, would relax just a little bit because things were going to be great. Paul was one of our favorites. He was friendly, reliable, easy to work with, and impossibly funny. One time we did this improv challenge, and Paul had to come up with a song on the spot based only on the phrase, emu attack. E, 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 emu attack. Emu attack. It's happening. Emu attack. We gotta run, run, run before those emus attack. We gotta get our family back on track. Oh, we went into the wilds of Africa or someplace. There's jungles, there's haystacks. Hey, what's going on? We got an emu attack. It's got an emu attack for you. I've known Paul for years, but I didn't know until recently that he was depressed. Yep, he seems so happy. 
I fell for that trap again. The trap that I always blame others for falling in, I fell in it too. But when I found out that he did have depression, I was all, yay, Paul F. Tompkins has a chronic mental illness. Because that meant I got to interview him. Paul F. Tompkins, he added the F because there was already another Paul Tompkins in the Actors Union, grew up in Philadelphia. He was introduced to comedy through television and the one show we've heard about most often on this podcast. Well, I remember the Carol Burnett show was was huge. Um, and uh, I, I remember watching uh, that religiously uh, and uh, my parents... I remember my mother calling me and my little brother in from uh, playing in the snow outside at night because uh, the la- the final Carol Burnett show was about to air. Oh, and wow. my mother impressing upon me that this is this is the last variety show that's on television. They're not doing this anymore. You know, it was it was uh, it was it was very important. And then when I was a little older, um, SCTV was uh, a gigantic thing for me. SCTV, a Canadian sketch comedy show that launched the careers of folks like John Candy, Martin Short, and Catherine O'Hara. Um, with with probably Monty Python and SNL a close second, you know? Like those shows I watched, um, you know, Monty Python I really loved. It was this limited thing that um, uh, I thought was really funny and the, the absurdist nature of it really appealed to me, just the silliness. But SCTV made me happy. You know, it it made me feel good in a way that a lot of other comedy didn't. It just filled me with joy. Why do you think that was? What was it about SCTV? Maybe it's the Canadian nature of it uh-huh. <laughs> that they, I knew that there was something nicer behind it all. They are funnier um, <laughs> as a people. Uh, well, I now, John, I'm not going to go that all far. All right, all right. I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, if you're talking about the mathematics of it, because their <laughs> yes. their their funniness relative to, the, to their population, their per absolutely. capita funniness, yes, yes, absolutely, <laughs> they score on points for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, SCTV was was so silly, and there was something about it that was gentle. You know, and I think that was that was a uh, that was something that I really responded to without being able to, being able to intellectualize it at the time, but that there was nothing mean or spiteful about their comedy, and yet it was still so so funny. Yeah, yeah, um, it's funny. I, I've talked to several people who've brought up uh, Carol Burnett as uh, as a real pivotal thing. Andy Richter, who I, I talked to not long ago. Uh, that that was him sitting in front of a TV watching Carol Burnett, and, and same with me. And I've really been stewing on it because it's been coming up a lot. And I wonder if there's something to the idea that they all seemed like friends on the Carol Burnett show, like when they oh, would that's, when they John, would that's bust a up a huge little. part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, they seem to really have a real affection for each other. And uh, I think you, I think you absolutely hit it on the head. And that that especially for me as a kid. I, I coming from a um, a family where there was a lot of discord. My mother and father did not like each other. They slept in separate bedrooms. They stayed married, even though their marriage was effectively over. And so to see things like <laughs> the Carol Burnett show or Match Game, the original Match Game, oh, where yes. it just seemed like these cool, fun people that all were having a great time together, you know, and that that to me was this window into this world of adulthood that I yearned to join. And I think I wanted to be a grown up because 
I wanted to be able to be in charge of myself. You know, I wanted to be able to maybe change my situation. That world might as well have been Narnia, you know, to, to, to look at these people through this, through this window and like, Oh my God, it's, it's, they seem so great. And why can't I be like that? I'm like funny. Why can't I be in a world where other people think I'm funny and I'm not an annoyance, you know, <laughs> why can't I crack up Paul Lynn on, on the set <laughs> yeah. of Hollywood squares yeah. instead of exactly. doing this? Exactly. Paul liked situations where people were nice and enjoyed one another's company. And that never goes away throughout his whole life. Now, not everyone who enjoyed Carol Burnett was depressed or went on to be a comedian. But a lot of comedians who enjoyed that show are depressed. It's this weird triangle. Depression, comedy, Carol Burnett show. I asked Paul when he thinks his first inkling of depression hit. Oh, boy. Um, huh. I mean, the first thing my mind flashes on is uh, wintertime and being in, in, in the Philadelphia area and uh, being on a train and seeing, um, you know, being a kid and being on a train and seeing uh, as the train moved on, uh, just the gray, bleak landscape in those uh, people's backyards uh, as the train would go through certain areas. And it would be that that yellow uh, frozen grass, you know, there's no snow. There's like snow around the edges. It's melted a little bit, but you see that just that dead grass on people's lawns. And I remember just feeling a profound, um, just bleakness. And it wasn't until, uh, but it was just, to me, that was just life, you know, and it wasn't until I was older. And after I'd been through therapy and, um, you know, had, had definitely recognized, uh, a lot about my life and where depression came from that um I, I remember being I was living in New York for a year doing a doing a job and uh, I went to Philadelphia for a, a comedy gig and took the train down and it was wintertime and I remember seeing those backyards again and seeing that yellow grass and realizing oh yeah I've always <laughs> I've always had this you know this is this was a I remember this feeling. I remember that it's been with me for longer than I even realized. How bad did it get when you were a kid? I mean, were you functional? Did you did it impede in your life? I mean, it sounds like there were some other things impeding in your life, but yeah, when I was a kid, it was easier to deal with because you're you know you're 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 a child. You don't. I, I was a child. I didn't yet know um, uh, life the way I would as an adult and and the the way of the world. You know what I mean? So it was, I had my friends that I played with. I had my, um, you know, numerous distractions and everything. And, and it was all about distractions because, you know, my life at home was so um, fraught with tension. You know, there was so much tension uh, in my house between uh, my parents, just the idea of their marriage hung over everything. And so my older brother and I fought all the time when I was growing up and, and, um, and it was, it was, that was terrible for me because he was so much bigger than I was that he could easily, uh, overpower me. And so I, just that feeling of helplessness kind of permeated everything. It, I was helpless to make my mother happy. You know, I was helpless to, uh, make their marriage better. I was helpless to reach my father who was so remote, even though he was living in the same house, I couldn't connect with him. And I didn't know, like as a child, didn't know how to never learned how to as an adult, you know, um, and so there was there was always this feeling of of helplessness, of powerlessness, of impotence that I had as a kid. And so I definitely retreated into everything I could for as long as I could. 
I did a lot of interviews for this program, and just about everybody brought up their parents. Sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, often a mix. There is a genetic hereditary component to depression. If one of your parents had it, you're not guaranteed to get it, but it is more likely. The environment you grow up in, however, can also have a huge influence on the course of your mental health. In Paul's case, it was an environment of acrimony and distance and bitterness. Did you recognize that this this marriage is broken? This isn't a, a, a real marriage in, in the classical sense? Yeah, because, you know, you I would go over to my friends' houses and, you know, I'd see how their parents reacted with acted with each other and and you know it was uh, it, it was not a secret you know like my mother actively disliked my father and would talk about it you know she was a woman who would um you know kind of rage alone in the kitchen you know you'd be in the living room and you'd hear her in the in the kitchen banging things and um uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, not literally, but but figuratively cursing my father, you know, um, and and the rest of us, you know, for not being helpful, you know, not not being able to uh, help her in the way that she needed help. But of course, we're we're kids and we don't get it's not you don't get that thing of 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 real empathy. You don't get that. You don't have that understanding of like. Oh, you know what? My mom's having a hard time, and uh, so I will uh, clean this room of my own volition to make things easier for her. You know, right. that's you don't acquire that until much later, and um, it was it was it was a terrible thing, and it and it lasted until you know both of my parents have passed on now, and it wasn't until my mother died first. It wasn't until my father died that the specter of their marriage was truly lifted from uh, the lives of me and my siblings. What did it feel like? It was a massive relief. It was a massive relief. And my my wife uh, came with me to my to my father's wake and uh, said she'd never seen anything like it. You know, and I, I never felt closer to my siblings, all of them, than I did at that um, at that funeral because we really I think we were all feeling it at the same time that we were living under that thing forever. And and even though my mother died, as long as my father was alive, it was always a reminder. Here's Paul talking about his mom's funeral on his 2010 special, You Should Have Told Me. Part of growing up means that you're going to start to lose your parents. And you're going to lose both of them. It's not like you lose the one and the other one just mysteriously lives forever. (laughs) And a couple years ago, my mom died. Now, I think she died. The rest of my family says she went to some big farm upstate where she can run around and play with all the other moms. but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Losing a parent is the world series of sadness. It's like you cry so much, you can't even believe it. You think something has gone wrong with the structure of your eyeballs, right? Like, I have broken the tap, and now I'm just going to wander around with leaky Catherine Hepburn eyes for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's a fun reference if you get it, right? That's not bad. But as with any intense sadness like that, there's always unexpected, hilarious things that happen that become the most hilarious because they're in stark contrast to the sadness. Like, my mother decreed that she wanted a very small viewing. She didn't want any kind of service when she died. She wanted it to be just our immediate family, me, my brothers and sisters, and my dad. That was it. So it's a small group of people. So we all gather, and then we realize my older brother is late 
to the viewing of our dead mother. And if you think we ever let him hear the end of that, then you need to go back to thinking school and take some extension courses. It is a source of joy to this day. When we realized he was getting late, we're like, oh, let's, let's get our material ready. By the time he got there, we let him have it so hard. Hey there, buddy, what happened? Some uh, errands got away from you? Try to squeeze in some, some stuff before you got to mom's viewing? Yeah, I understand. Maybe next time mom dies, right? <laughs> now you know the traffic patterns this time of day. It was almost worth my mother dying. Almost. Almost. The way you describe your parents, that sounds like I don't wanna I don't wanna diagnose people who have passed away, and I'm not a doctor, but that all sounds like classic symptoms of depression. Did they Oh absolutely, I totally agree. Did they recognize that? Did they know that? No. No. It it was you know, it they were from a different time and I think that um I think that you know, they were greatest generation kids. And so my dad fought in World War II. They were depression babies, you know. And uh, it wasn't a thing that was done when they were younger. And then, but they lived through the 70s and they, and, you know, the 80s and, and um, you know, they lived to the 21st century. And so there were, therapy was a thing that, that they knew about. But I think that, you know, by the time that they were, <laughs> I remember my mother talking about, um pot and saying you know her towards the end of her life she said her one regret that was uh one her one her one big regret was that she never tried pot and she said uh that when she was younger she didn't know where to get it and then when she was older she'd already quit smoking so it was too late um (laughs) and i think that that was probably she probably had a similar attitude about therapy that it was just like well at this point you know i mean what's what's why bother you know i've lived with it this long you know how 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 much different is it going to be? You know, I I mean who knows? I don't I I have no idea. I have no idea why. You know because she was an unhappy person that lived with unhappiness for a long time. But then she would also you could see you could make her laugh and you could you could see her enjoy things. You know, um, and she really enjoyed entertainment. She was a big movie buff, and we would talk about stuff like that. So so she wasn't completely joyless but she she did have so much so much anger so much anger and i think sadness in her life and it's it's really a shame to me that she you know was never able to really do something about it and yet sadness and anger are things you never ever ever observe in paul on stage or off he is unlike his parents not just in disposition but in how he takes care of himself He has looked at what's wrong, sought help, and been very open about his struggles. He hopes that will make these issues not as scary for people who enjoy his work. Do you live your life in part as a response to how your mom and dad lived their life? Do you consciously make different choices so that you're not them? I don't know that it's conscious, but I but I do think that from a very early age, you know, I I started stand up when I was 17 and I knew that and I I did the school plays and things like that. And I knew that this was something that I had to do. And I I didn't I didn't contact. I never contextualized it, contextualized it in the um, 
in the in the in the framing of well I'm not going to live their life I'm going to do my own thing I I for me it was just it was my prime directive I had to do this and I didn't know anything else you know and um I, I remember having a, a huge knockdown drag out fight with my mother when I was still in high school saying that I wanted to go into show business and, and she was furious and and I remember her screaming at me don't you know how hard a life that is and you know I one I I said yeah I need to do it anyway i need to do it you know and for for i would say for a good year i doubted that decision and thought well maybe i'll become maybe i'll go to law school maybe i'll become a lawyer because that's still like you know some sort of that's like a respected profession or or a uh you know a profession that it's a it's a true profession you know that you can you can say proudly and and your parents can be proud of you but um it's there's something still theatrical about it you know what i mean and uh yeah, but then I, I just I just couldn't. I, I got into stand-up, and that was it. This is from Paul's 2012 album and special, Laboring Under Delusions. Tonight I'm going to be sharing with you stories of various jobs that I've had, both in and out of show business. I stand before you in my capacity as a stand-up comedian. This is the longest I have held any single job title in my life. I started doing stand-up comedy when I was 17 years old, ladies and gentlemen. I was a child, a child. It was downright Dickensian. <laughs> Went there to the comedy club with my sooty face and my tattered cap. <laughs> Please, sir, might I tell some jokes for the people? <laughs> 17 years old, did my first open mic. As soon as I set foot on that stage, I knew, well, this is what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. Case closed, I have found my calling. It was very exciting. But that fall, I was coming up on going to college. And even though I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life very quickly, I thought, well, I should still go to college um, because if I don't go to college, there's a good chance I will get yelled at. <laughs> is there anything worse? Can, can you think, can, can mankind even conceive of something worse than getting yelled at? No, this isn't the future where we have big transparent skulls. This is a fear that persists to this day, right? Getting yelled at, even as a grown, I'm a grown man, I have a mustache. But anytime I'm in any sort of municipal building, a post office situation, be standing in line, line I've stood in countless times. The whole time I'm in the line, my lizard brain is whispering to me, you might be in the wrong line. And when you get up to the glass, the lady's going to yell at you. Like what I imagine is going to happen is I will get up there and state my needs and the lady will go, you're in the wrong line. You ruined it for the whole post office. Get to the back of the other line. Oh, and you're a bad person, just like you knew you were. You should listen to Laboring Under Delusions, if you can, Spotify or wherever. A lot of it is about Paul struggling, making mistakes, getting fired for stealing from a video store that he worked at, embarrassing himself in front of weird Al Yankovic. All these incidents along the road to the eventual really great career that he has, to the success he now enjoys. 
Not everyone wanted him on that road. I wish that my parents could have been supportive of it, at least after I became successful. But they never could be. You know, I I don't think I, I think that a lot of times. If you go into show business, I think most people around you who have no context for show business, they think that your goal is to become a global superstar on the order of Tom Cruise. And if you haven't achieved that, you must be very sad and feel like a failure. (laughs) And so it always seems like a pipe dream to them. And because in their minds, well, you're never going to be Tom Cruise. But you but when you try to explain like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. Like, I'm making a living. This is great. I'm I'm I may have, you know, goals that I haven't achieved yet, but I've already I've already lived the dream. I'm I'm at this this point that I wanted to get to where I am supporting myself doing what I love to do. And like my mother just she couldn't hear that, you know, like at the end of her life, she was asking me, you know, have you figured out what you want to do with the rest of your life? And I, I just couldn't make her see, you know, I just could never make her see. So she had talked with her doctor about her quality of life because she was in and out of hospitals all the time. And it was like getting more and more frequent, you know, the hospital visits. And like the forecast was not great. Like it was just going to get worse and worse. So she finally decided to go off dialysis and then just let nature take its course. So it was like a big, huge decision. And, you know, it's heavy stuff, man. And I was with her in the ambulance ride from from the hospital to the hospice. And I'm holding her hand, and uh, we're making the chit-chat that you do in that situation. (laughs) And at one point, she says to me, so have you figured out what you want to do with the rest of your life? Now look, (laughs) my mother has never been able to fully grasp my career, right? It's outside of her realm of experience, show business, how does it work? She does not know, right? She didn't, she didn't understand there's like a whole middle part where you can make a really nice living and enjoy your life and everything. And there's no way I could ever make her understand that. So at this time, at this point, still, she's doing this. You figured out what you want to do with the rest of your life. And I just go, well, uh, I'm doing it, Mom. Everything's, uh, everything's good, so you don't have to worry. I, I don't want to get testy with her because I feel like it would be bad form. <laughs> So I think, well, that'll be that, you know, same as it always has been for my entire 20 years in show business. And then she goes, I mean, uh, what's, what's the plan here? And I'm like, oh, boy, oh, boy. Everything's going according to plan, Mom. You got, uh, got nothing to worry about? I am A-OK. So uh, rest easy. Bad choice of words. Take it easy. Take it light. I don't know what to say to you, lady. You are really pushing my buttons. That's from Paul's special, You Should Have Told Me. Coming up, could a troubled home conceivably lead to problems later on as an adult? Yes. More in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma surrounding it, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illness. We have a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of kind of kicking at the monster a little bit, taking its power down. But at the same time, we realize that depression is a serious disease. It's something that we need to take seriously, and it's something that you need to take seriously if it exists in your life, whether it's you or someone around you. 
The good news is that people can get help, and you can talk to your loved ones. You could talk to your friends and coworkers, and that can be an awkward conversation sometimes, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, tools, conversation starters, ways to bridge that conversational gap. Find information there to start those conversations. Don't go it alone. Don't let stigma win. Makeitok.org. All right, so Paul F. Tompkins finds his calling in comedy, knows what he wants to do, and is good at it. But when things have been screwy when you're young, and then you grow up and haven't really addressed the screwiness, the screwiness is likely to come back and be all screwy. Well, I went to therapy for the first time in 2002, and it was as the, as, as the result of a uh, a terrible falling out that I had with a, a close female friend that I had developed romantic feelings for. And uh, it was a devastating loss to me when this person, you know, said, I just can't deal with this anymore. I can't deal with your, you know, your anger at me not being able to reciprocate your feelings. It's ruined. It's ruined our friendship, you know. And at, at that moment, I was really, really devastated. And I, I was probably... Depressed about that, um, what felt like a clinical depression about that, for a good, uh, I'm going to say half a year, and I walked around under a under a cloud. You know, it just felt like it was on me all the time, and I felt like it wasn't so much, oh, I want that person back in my life. It's that I have, I have, you know, there's something wrong with me, you know. There's something wrong with me with who I am that I have made this happen. So he works on how he handles relationships with other people, with himself. He gets the brain car into the psychology shop and has some work done. But John, just because someone looked at some grass weird and went to a therapist later on, that doesn't mean they're depressed. Well, good point, imaginary listener who's talking to me through my own voice. But this does. I went through a depression um, a clinical depression, uh, I'm going to say it's like three years ago now, where um, it felt like that um, that time with the uh, after the falling out with my friend, but um, a thousand times worse, where I I realized, oh, this is this is what this is. This is what this feels like, because, you know, when you when you talk to people about when people talk to you about depression, if you haven't experienced it. You can't quite get what they mean. You you know they can they can they can try to explain it to you so many different ways, but until you feel it, you you just can't experience it. It's it's like there you know there's there's a few experiences like that in life that um you know you can't you can only describe what it's like so much and have that be understood. It's the difference between looking at a map and driving that distance yeah, in a car. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when I had that depression, it was, um, I felt uh, despair, hopelessness. I didn't want to feel these things, but I felt them anyway. And trying to shake them off, and it doesn't work. There's nothing you can do. And that was when, that's the thing that I wish people would understand, is that when uh, the dismissal of people's feelings that, oh, you're just wallowing in this or, you know, lighten up or do this. That'll make you feel better. They don't understand that the person wants to feel better. Of course I would like to. You know, I'm not – this is like a thing that 
this is just on me. This is just on me and I can't get it off, you know? And it really felt like a thing that was uh, like some kind of blanket that was over me that I couldn't remove. And, uh, you know, it's like that thing where I, I would look at my life on paper and say, I have a good life. Why am I feeling this way? You know, I, I, why does everything feel so hopeless to me? And, um, that's when I realized I think I'm I think I have a clinical depression. Now, was this Paul's genetics finally catching up with him, delivering him the misery that was his birthright? Or had it been there all along, masked beneath a veneer of comedy and performance, tap dancing through the graveyard? Don't know. Can't say brains are weird. But Paul did want to make himself better. And that man asking himself, meds or no meds? I was lucky that I had a friend of mine who had been down this road a few years before me, um, years before me, probably like 10, 15 years before me, and had very, I think, very plainly and expertly described um, and demystified the experience for me of being depressed and going on antidepressants. And because, you know, the, before I went to therapy for the first time, I was afraid. I, I had no idea what was going to happen. It was something completely new. And I was like, oh, what am, am I going to find out horrible things about myself that, you know, are gonna, this is going to make things 10,000 times worse, you know? Um, and and the same with, with, with antidepressants, that it was so scary, the idea of medication that changes your brain in some way. That, oh, my God, what am I not going to be me anymore? And my friend explained it so well and said it just it just gets you to a better place you still feel like yourself you know and you and there's there's different there's different medications there's different dosages you find out the thing that works for you um so you can get to a point where um you know you still feel like you uh you just have this thing lifted from you so you can live your life you know and you can you can feel like you're you, it's not about not feeling like you anymore it's that you feel like yourself again you know right you feel like the 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 person everybody else gets to be yeah 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 and uh, and she also said you know i did this for a time and then i went off it and then i would do it again if i needed to that in particular was a huge thing knowing that Look, it could be finite. It could be, you know, for a long, long time. You know, um, who knows? But the the important thing is that you look at it as a practical thing that is going to make your life better. Because what's happening now is not working. And there's no shame in looking for some kind of assistance um, in, the, in the same way that you would treat any other medical problem. You know, that you if you if you have an issue and there's something that can help you with that issue, then you use that something. There's no and there's nothing there's there's nothing weird about that. Paul arrives at a place in life that is more stable and friendlier, nicer than where he had come from. Along the way, there was the melancholy of early youth with the frozen grass, a difficult family, a messed up approach to love, a walloping from depression. But he got somewhere good. And it's at that point where you have gone through all this and you've arrived at a better place that you can finally look back and try to figure out what the hell happened back there. For Paul F. Tompkins, that process began over a meal. I remember having a, um, a dinner with uh, an old friend of mine from high school, a guy I hadn't seen in many years. And I was home for, 
for a visit and, and made time to have dinner with him. And he was recounting all of these stories from when we were in high school. And a lot of these stories were me, um, you know, being funny and doing funny things. And I didn't remember any of them. I didn't remember a single one of them. And like, they weren't even familiar at all. And I, after a while started to lie and say like, yeah, I remember that, but I didn't remember any of it. And it was, uh, it was strange to me because I feel like I've always been a very fearful person. And what he was describing to me was someone who, as he put it, did not care what other people thought. And yet my internal monologue is that's all I cared about forever. All I cared about was what other people thought. I didn't I didn't consider myself a brave person at all. I didn't I didn't consider myself, you know, individual like an individual like a, a, a you know, uh, individualistic or 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 uh, the devil may care or whatever. I, I thought like I desperately wanted people to like me, you know, I desperately and I guess that's what I was doing. But it didn't feel it certainly didn't feel to me like. Hey, I just do what I want. I'm a free spirit. Who was that guy then doing all those things? If I mean, it was, it was you. But is it like a split personality thing or what? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it was that I was at. I was. That was my way of coping at the time. You know, and I. I think that probably because I was out in the world with, I'd found people who loved me and who accepted me, and they liked what I had to offer. And when, and I was not getting that at home. I was not popular at home, you know. <laughs> so now I'm out, and I have a friend group, and there's the larger community at school who knows me as a funny guy, and that I'm talented. I'm in these school plays and everything, and everyone agrees that I'm good at it. You know, it was a huge thing for me to have uh, the the approval of people, a very you know to varying degrees. You know, some people more than others. Some people were my close friends who really enjoyed my company. And then there were other people that, you know, were not part of my group, but that uh, were friendly to me in the halls because I had something to offer. And I never thought of it uh, that way till just now that I had something to offer. That you I was had a commodity. Something. Yeah. 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 And so that guy back then was doing what he had to do. But uh, but I know that. You know, from hearing those stories, I know that I was also having a good time. You know, it was that it was in I know that it was I know that feeling. And I even though I can't remember those specific incidents, that intoxication of this is going the way it's supposed to go. I'm doing this thing and I'm getting the response that I'm trying to get, which was not something that ever happened at home. I'm really intrigued by this situation that Paul was in because it is at once both healthy and unhealthy. Unhealthy because audience approval is not the same thing as real support. Applause and genuine love are very different. So to rely on fans to give you what you couldn't otherwise get is messed up. And many performers are also messed up. But Paul seems pretty healthy. He took those lemons and he made lemonade. He recognized something in himself that was uniquely his own, comedy. But it could be anything for anyone else, engineering, baking, whatever. He leaned into his thing and he carved out a better life where he gets to enjoy himself. Of course, for his line of work, he had to figure out what to say. Even from the earliest times, I think I wanted to have the um the the comedy that I did be uh you know a pure expression of me 
Um, you know, I came up through the clubs when having a sort of conversational delivery was not something that you saw a lot of people doing. There was a there was a you know a type of delivery that was very common to comedy club comedy and and uh, a rhythm to it that that we all kind of had you know um, in in the way we deliver jokes and everything. But I always wanted to. Um, I kind of realized my, my favorite comedians were the people that uh, that seemed uh, confident and calm. Worth noting, and as you'll remember, Paul grew up in a situation where nothing was calm and he didn't have confidence. And now he's calm and confident. This is also from Laboring Under Delusions. It's about Paul's time working at a Philadelphia hat store called Hats in the Belfry. Now, this is when I knew it was time to move on from Hats in the Belfry. When this happened on more than one occasion. It's happened twice. Someone comes into the store. I'm alone behind the counter. This person points to a very specific hat that has a very specific name and says to me, Hey, let me see that king hat. It's not called a king hat, sir. It's called a crown. What are you doing? Crown. You know this. It's not like it's a foreign term. We don't have a word for that in English. It's not like a word you've only ever seen in print. You're afraid to say it out loud because you'll mispronounce it. Crown. You know, like... Like crown. More than once this happened, weep for humanity, ladies and gentlemen. Six months later, an entirely different person comes into the store. I'm alone behind the counter. This person says to me, hey, can I see the king hat? What is going on? <laughs> Dictionary's too heavy. Lose some words. Hats in the Belfry, still in business. I Googled it. Three locations. How do you approach stand-up now and like knowing that you talked about how in high school you wanted everybody to like you and, and and as a kid you wanted people to like you and you weren't getting you know what a kid should get you got shortchanged uh and you're in this profession that sort of depends on getting people to like you <laughs> so how do you balance that well i've been doing it uh, luckily i've been doing it long enough now that uh you know, I have I know that there are people that like me, you know, I know that there are people out there who who like what I have to say. And so when I go out on a stage now, my goal is not to make the people like me because I, I think because I've come to accept myself as a as a nice person, as a likable person, you know, so I don't feel like I'm starting from not only, you know, uh, step one, but negative steps, you know what I mean? Which is what it felt like before. Now it feels like, um, 
you know, especially after my my style of comedy shifted into uh, more personal stories, um, when I realized how uh, enjoyable and satisfying it was to tell stories that had an emotional element to them and have people respond with uh, empathy, with, um, you know, when I realized, oh, people people are laughing at this because they've been there, too. We've all been there. Then it became um, instead of walking out on stage and, and thinking, I want these people to like me. I'm walking out on stage and thinking, I want to connect with these people. You know, I want to I want to reach that place uh, that we get to where we all understand each other and we know that um, we've all done embarrassing things. We've all felt sad. We've all felt scared. Uh, we've all been there and it's okay to laugh about it. I'm glad everyone seems to have gotten their, uh, their tickets in order. Uh, there was a great uh, uh, flurry of activity on uh, Twitter. People who did not have tickets, people who had tickets had to get rid of them, people who had tickets for a certain night, and it was the wrong night, and back and forth. And, it, and I, I was retweeting these tweets to let people, because I knew that the, the, the show sold out way in advance, and if some people were not uh, so quick on the draw and they did not get their tickets way back when. I thought, well, I'll help these people out. And I thought it was an easy enough thing for me to do. Then today, people started getting bossy about it. We're like, hey, Paul, I got some tickets. Retweet this. I'm trying to get rid of them. I said, well, you know that's me, right? Like, I'm, I'm Paul and... Like, I'm not the ticketing broker. It's like a show to see me where... I would think people would be excited about it. They'd be interested in seeing it. It's not a burden for you to carry around that I'm supposed to help you with. Like, hey, Tompkins. I don't know if I was drunk when I bought these tickets or what. But the last thing I want to do on God's green earth is go to that show tonight. Come on, come on, help me unload these. Don't make me come to the show. That's Paul from Laboring Under Delusions. Now, what can you and I take from Paul's journey? You and I who are not stand-up comedians. You and I who have few, if any, comedy specials nor roles on TV shows. I think for non-comics, it works out to recognizing that you can create a place for yourself that is calmer and more confident than the place you may have come from. Somewhere that's nicer where you're with people who like each other. That's Paul's journey, from chaos to order, from distance to friendliness, riding along with depression as a sidekick as he goes. Paul is married to someone, Janie Haddad Tompkins, whom he did not obsess over in an unhealthy way. Just met her, got along, they're very happy together. In fact, his journey is so complete, he ended up being on Match Game after all. At least a stage version. This is from the San Francisco Sketch Fest in 2010. What you are about to see right now, ladies and gentlemen, is the highest heights of the actor's craft shoved in your face. I hope somewhere that the moldering corpse of Edmund Keene is crying.
The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our technical director for this episode was Michael Osborne. Thanks also to Jonathan Blakely. I want to thank a few other people who helped guide this program from an odd little idea I had to a thing that is now in your ears and hopefully brain. Peter Clowney and Steve Nelson gave tremendous leadership early on. Also thanks to Lauren D., Nancy Cassett, Megan Ellingbow, Julia Schrenkler, Slajna Durakovic, Diana Floten, Stu Newman, and you. Very big thank you to you listeners with your emails and your tweets, your messages of support, your dialogue to keep that dialogue going, keep that conversation happening. Thank you. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, and it was written and performed by our friend Rhett Miller. So much more about Rhett is at his website. As you might expect, that's what websites are for, rhettmiller.com. Confidential help is available for free at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org, which is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma. It's a way for you to find help either for yourself or for people around you. It's a place you can get information, get tips to start those sometimes awkward conversations where you really want to reach out to somebody, but you don't really know how to go about it. This is a resource. It's a place to check out for yourself, for others. Makeitok.org. Find it. Use it. This is the part of the show where I normally talk about what's on the next episode, but I don't really know what that will be because this is the last episode of our first season, but just our first season. Note the use of first, because that's right, we are coming back. There will be another season. Plans, even now, are well underway. You can find us on Twitter. Yeah, I figured I'd go ahead and make us a Twitter. We're at THW of D. Yeah, I know, it's a long name, best I could do. There was already even somebody at THWOD, so that was kind of mysterious. THWOD is our Twitter account. Make sure to go to iTunes and rate us and write a review. It really, really, really helps get the show out into the world and make sure people know about it. Let's go out on Rhett Miller's song, Pagliacci, full version, written just for the show. I will talk to you more next season. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? Doctor has a thing, says he might know just the thing. There's a performer here in town, and he's the world's greatest clown. Laughter as we all know is the says doc that's the problem what if i was to tell you i'm payachi this great big smile is just for show what if i was to tell you this is 
just grease paint Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know things happen to everybody. That's just a fact. So why are we always so quick to just say fine when someone asks how we are? Lucy Klonithi, um, how are you? Oh, I don't even know how to answer that. I'm becoming a person again. That's good. Um, like I feel like a human participating in what's happening on earth. Um, Get real about feelings, life, and all the awkward stuff that goes in them with Terrible Thanks for Asking, a new podcast hosted by Nora McInerney, available on iTunes and anywhere you find podcasts. 